0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill and today as always we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First we're joined by Ian Pye, director of Old Holly Farm, a family-run working organic dairy farm near Lancashire. Ian, hello.
1: Hello, welcome from a sunny field in,
0: in the town. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us from your lovely field. Uh, and of course, so many people who have been in lockdown on small spaces could only dream of being where you're standing right now. Now, um, of course, we're here to discuss the concept of leadership. But before we get there, we need to touch on the ongoing COVID situation. How has this affected your business? Uh,
1: good question. I thought you might ask that. Um, we've got two businesses. We've got a diversification side and then obviously the core of the business which is actually milking cows, which is agriculture. And the diversification side, which uh probably have spoken to many people, are going to say the same thing, which has been tough. Managing staff, making sure they are safe. Um, and uh, I think on that side, you know, furlough and everything else has been a great help. Um, but we've viewed it as an opportunity to that things have probably been yeah, change and try in the future just for to put him the rock the boat. It's provided an opportunity to change now, which is quite good. Um, and probably the more interesting side is the agricultural side, which is probably a bit different. Um, COVID has been quite good, to be fair, uh, for agriculture.
2: Uh,
1: it's a primary product. People want our products. You know, shelves are empty. Um, and it has been, uh, somebody might roll their eyes if I say this, but. The template for COVID. It's not a unique experience. It has happened before in agriculture. Um, with foot and mouth, um, and almost a template. Um, lockdown, uh, movement restrictions, uh, people leaving food parcels out, everything else. So agriculture has actually been quite well prepared. Um, you know, when you deal with nature, which COVID is, essentially, um, if you substitute the word for COVID for drought, snow, um, you know, pestilence or Parasite. Um, we have just implemented plans that we always have in place anyway. So It's not been too bad. Um, we, we just knew uh, when it was announced in York that there was a, a case in the country um, before anybody did anything else. We've got, got quite a good peer group and we had a quick discussion amongst ourselves and we thought this is going to get quite serious quite quickly. Um, the country's not going to lock down. People aren't going to take it seriously until something extra happens, so lockdown's not going to happen, so we use that breathing space um, to go through the business very quickly and look at where we're going to have shortfalls in our supply chain, our supply system, and we stockpile quite quickly. Um, And to be fair, without sounding smug, which I don't want to be, but uh, it works. That's that's a long enough answer for COVID.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now, of course, uh, you have mentioned those other uh, trials and tribulations you have been through, such as foot and mouth. Um, what is the next uh, issue in agriculture that you are preparing for at this point in time?
1: Uh, trade talks, um, Brexit, uh, are big things, which, you know, I mean, with Brexit, we've prepared before and then it's got to the London hour and it's not happened. Um, so, again, we're probably well suited and um, big ticket items, just like with COVID big, uh, big you know, uh, rubber that's going to be wheels and things that we need to order, uh, are on order and we've set a price already. And um, we did that before COVID. Um, and then again, you know, just going through and making sure that your supply chain is robust enough. Um, and as with COVID proved, uh, as now you can have quite a good conversation with people, especially smaller businesses, because you've got that, that personal relationship with them, you know, you know, it's going to work before you even start. Uh, and you, you can get, can get things done, you know. I mean, during COVID and during lockdown, we got extra work done, which is great, without putting anybody at risk. Um, the the thing with Brexit is it's going to go on longer uh, than it is, than COVID is. We <laughs> have a bigger hangover. Uh, and then the trade talks and the food standards uh, are a big worry because UK agriculture, even the best farmers just cannot compete with the cheapest food in the world. So we're going to have to have the best standards and communicate that. Um, so it's going to be the environmental element for UK farms and, you know, our farms. I mean, we are planting woodland as we speak uh, to offset carbon. Um, that is going to be the cornerstone. It's not going to change, uh, I can't see.
0: Now, of course, we're here to discuss leadership, and I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Uh
1: could give you the textbook answer. Probably everybody's giving you something, the simple answer. Probably the tongue-in-cheek answer <laughs> would be putting up with everybody else's crap and assembling it into some sort of thing where you can get through and achieve your goal or goal that you wanted to achieve in that day, week, year, or lifetime.
0: Uh <laughs> and how do you describe your personal leadership style?
1: Uh, my personal leadership style, uh, I would not ask anybody do anything that I would not be prepared to do myself. Uh, I might not have the skills to do it, um, but I, like I say, I would not ask somebody to do something that I would not be prepared to do myself. Um, and so uh, I did, well, I went to Newcastle University, and that was superb. It gave me uh, a great peer group of probably the best in which can have a frank conversation. Uh, and then when I returned back to the business, uh, I did a leadership course, I think called the Nuffield Scholarship from the Nuffield Trust, and, and I did learn a lot about myself and that. And probably the, the main thing I learned was that uh, before you do anything, you've got to be honest with yourself, uh, realise your own limitations, uh, realise your own problems, your own faults, uh, and then you can fill those gaps accordingly. Uh, and in this business, I probably realised that. Whilst uh, what I like, managing people, I'm probably not the best at it, um, so we outsource any that I can, and then I am actually prepared to do the worst job to myself, which I think sets the high standard for the people who are going to work with me for form.
0: Where would you say you derived your leadership style from? Did you have a particular role model, or have you been shaped more by circumstance?
1: Uh, definitely not a role model. I think uh, if you believe in heroes and stuff, you're... Uh, you're uh, you're sadly uh, lacking. I, you can only, everybody, every single person on this planet is only shaped by the mistakes they have made uh, and what we've learned from them. I've made lots of mistakes. I've learned from them. It's formed me into who I am today. Uh, and that is the only way that you can learn. Uh, if you ask any sportsman, uh, they never learned from winning. The only thing that they ever learned was from losing uh, and it taught them how to win. Uh, and I apply the same to myself. Is, uh, if I get something wrong, learn from it and go forward. Don't dwell on it too much. To keep it in the back of your mind, but go forward. Um, but, um yeah, to say I've got like an absolute role model that I aspire to be, but it's not going to
0: happen. Sorry.
1: <laughs> now, of
0: course, um there are a lot of different aspects of leadership which some leaders find difficult, but most agree that the most difficult is dealing with conflict. Do you have a particular method of how you resolve conflict?
1: Um, well, uh, I mean, it just depends on the situation. You know, uh, you have to, like I say, look at the situation each time. I mean, uh, if it's conflict where uh, I'm wrong, then it's a case of stepping back and making sure that I'm not wrong again. If case somebody else is wrong, well, then we can only work on that and look at why it went wrong in the first place. Um, but, you know, honestly, in agriculture, conflict is different because agriculture family businesses uh, and family um, and when you're dealing with family it's almost impossible to be sacked uh, but on the other hand uh, it doesn't leave with you know it doesn't finish at 5pm uh, with family so you've got to be quite good at managing the situation but it doesn't get to it. So I think when you're dealing with work and family it's gone too far when it gets to it. If that uh, if
0: that makes sense now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to a close, but before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Old Holly Farm?
1: Uh, Old Holly Farm, on the diversification side, is about maintaining the high standards, making sure that uh, customers have confidence. Just with anything, it is about confidence. You know, whether you get on a plane or you buy a car or you get a new job, it is about confidence. It's making sure that our customers are confident that we are a clean, safe place to visit. Uh, and the schools are the same, that we are a clean and safe place to visit. Um, with the farm, um, it's about investing in the environment, investing in the animal welfare and standards that our milk buyer, which is Arla and McDonald's, want. Uh, and they are very good at communicating that with us, and we've been good at communicating with us all the way through COVID uh, and finding homes for our products. Um, so it's a case of just carrying on with trying to maintain high standards, really. Um, Beyond that, beyond the 12 months, uh, I mean, we've got, we've got to build for the next generation that are coming through the business. And we've got um, some other projects that are, that are non-farm that uh, have got potential for us, but uh, they're, they're probably further than 12 months away.
0: Well, Ian, thank you very much for coming on the program. It's been a pleasure to have you, and I have to have you again soon. But for now, thank you. Thank you very much. That was Ian Pye, director of Old Holly Farm. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Scott Chaloner's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst.
2: And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning.
3: Uh, Good morning. How are you?
2: Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it?
3: It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. (laughs) I hope it might last.
2: Absolutely, Can't a
3: thunderstorm. It's it's lovely.
2: It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December twenty twenty two, and it's the World Cup final, and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans. Anybody, and England are two 0 up in the ninetieth minute. So victory is all but guaranteed and Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines?
3: I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and Goodness me, that's nearly 60 years, I guess, if if, uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A A for him, he's a fantastic player, a tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I want up wanting to bury it, and I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago, and it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm-hmm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievement is about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team.
2: Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal... I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time, and there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened, the ball nestled in the top corner, England 1-4-2 and lifted the World Cup, but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you?
3: Yes, I think people, um, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. As the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving, play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I now think of the game, I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished. I'm having a whack this ball with everything I've got left. I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand, into the crowd, by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and it it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which which, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours.
2: It just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership be it in sport or in business you can't go sometimes without taking risk.
3: Absolutely, yes. It, absolutely. Yes, it, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to uh, there's an element of, of, of risks, uh, of making this, but has going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risk in all mm-hmm. walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got to have a go. You can't uh, get, be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward.
2: And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, to uh, Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the Health Service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966?
3: Oh absolutely, particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for, w- for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, when you begin to realise during these turbulent times, how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who were injured almost every day on the terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people that, um, who were about 66, and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that who's been around a long time, would still say he is the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's... It's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just, uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach as who is, who is a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason for passing a coach person to our who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot, of all over different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alframsey Ramsey was was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think if leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers have, have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're sensible enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching you or managing you. You can learn uh, from that if you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing, into uh, coaching and management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that, think like well, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it and making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their their careers
2: completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true?
3: <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, In our road in Greenway, it so it's called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite close together. It was a cul-de-sac, not a big long road, uh, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, in as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road, um, and you to had to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And it's always a fear of play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making bolts of wood gliders. And a uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of uh, course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, Took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when there's nowhere else to play, apart from the street, and uh, we were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true.
2: And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you?
3: Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, have, I was born in Ashton Line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- Probably I was the eldest of three. When I was probably about seven or eight, into this particular street uh, called Greenways, and he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third Golden in the World Cup in many years in the back garden, and when we moved on to a, we moved upmarket to a council house uh, somewhere in Chelmsford, and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot, and so I at that time. And even today, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed. And I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton. His brother didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic, but I was pretty, pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he had, had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father. I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He he, um, And what happened with my my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school-leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the, what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school in age. And, uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football, it's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he... Uh, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically.
2: And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it?
3: Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, The sort of went messing about but to, to, between the two. I had uh, one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got nought and, and nought not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, Funny, I saw a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. The um, v Lancashire if you're up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, uh, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for mm. a big field player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 62-63 60, season, the three years of all the World Cup.
2: And when we think about leadership in football
3: Well, first of all, he he was a great uh, – two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realize – it's funny how you look at – I've seen when Gordon passed away, naturally, uh, sadly, um, a few months ago, and she was showing a lot of videos of a bank scene the program about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on but I didn't realize how um, athletic he was uh, how quick he was athletic Um, springing forward and smother balls not just tipping balls agility wise he was absolutely fantastic but as a character he was a joker he was a a very kind very mild mannered lovely lovely man the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet but he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him, and are close to him, who remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for for Banksy.
2: And we were very lucky,
3: very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player but in, in the squad and Ray Wilson, our left-back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup Some world-class players and Banksy was up there not with the best the best for me to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them and, and um, obviously Tony Wadding saw that and if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did and um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea, he lost a bit of weight and uh, although he was a little bit in himself, hence they needed him to to stay with me, what he was, was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across, the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill-discipline within his, his general life. And you need, at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold. Mm-hmm. Without any shadow of a doubt, you know, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club.
2: And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you'd been used to back in England?
3: Um, well, I think Ireland was just still sort of well with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in in America, it was the early days of. Um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle. So it, did, it was difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that it was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with home City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the, uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very really close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on a on goal over, two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was. I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge. And I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contributions to that success that i had. So, um, yes, it, uh, this, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and uh, oh, I think she was uh, pregnant with her. Third daughter over there, so that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for, for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid. And I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen.
2: <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that? you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career
3: yes I think it's I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is I don't know being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer maybe in longer not so sort of immediately after the finished playing but in the long term when um uh, and I always joke with people introduce me uh, to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the, the whatever the word is I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years not, not certainly um, I felt during the Time after I finished playing or managing or playing things during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years probably.
2: For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sports, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them?
3: Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Al Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has natural characteristics. You can learn about management on mental courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful boss is, 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 within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, because i take it into my, my business life and even my, fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple, uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt, should have been in the squad, possibly at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not you know, completely complying with everything and they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was and even some with great ability. I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that that for me is the the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life.
2: Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed.
3: Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice, yes.
2: So Jeff... Thank you ever so much for joining us on the, uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again.
0: This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye.